The Lord led us to perform certain specific prophetic acts, such as marking out the territory with flags, erecting altars on the top of the world, and spreading the name of God everywhere, decreeing that we consecrate the earth to Him. In the course of the time we were there, the whole valley was filled with praise and worship, and on several occasions we were able to see angels around us. Satan, here is the sword that God has placed within my hands, and I will strike you so hard by the Spirit that you will know, that you will know, that you will know that your kingdom is falling. I will do it by Jehovah and by Jesus. Now I prophesy that the beast receives his blow. Now by Jehovah, by Jesus, by Jehovah, by Jesus, by Jehovah, by Jesus, Satan, be destroyed. Amen. Fall now. Your kingdom has fallen. I prophesy that your kingdom has fallen. Because Satan and his beasts have fallen. Noise, tumult in the heavens because the archangel Michael has come forth with the sword of God in order to bring retribution for iniquity. Noise in the heavens, noise over the armies of the earth because the eternal God has risen up in judgment, thus saith the Lord. I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher, a movie buff. I have been searching my house for classified documents, and I'm an evangelical. I think you said you're a theology dirt. and Something I'm, like that. I, I'm going to go yeah. with that. I, <laughs> I, um, we got a new word here. It's 2023. Dirt. Language evolves. English is ever-changing. Uh, but this is still Veterans of Culture Wars. everyone we are back this is veterans of culture wars a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical christianity we welcome you to the podcast whether you are a believer or not um zach it's been a little while we had an extended christmas break but here we are in late january we're back and uh we are going to talk more christian nationalism tonight because there is a lot to cover on that subject that's very relevant in our world right now yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it. What What have you been up to, by the way? We, we've We've talked a little bit, but it's been a month and a half since since we've done this. Yeah, uh, you know, I've had enough time to get over the the depression of of the Christmas season being over. I've seen a lot of movies. There uh, you go. Oscar nominations came out. I, I gotta say, uh, I saw 
I saw women talking the other night. I, I went and saw two movies at once. I saw The Whale, which was terrible. Um, and, <laughs> and you can listen to a great uh, episode of Maximum Film, I believe, with, with our previous guests, uh, Alonzo Duraldi, talking about that. Um, and then after that, I saw Women Talking, which um, definitely connects to some of the things we talk about in here and that it deals with a small religious community and, and the women who have been repeatedly abused and traumatized and um, having time with the men away uh, to to plan whether they are all going to leave or stay and fight or what what is going to happen. Um, and, uh, it's, it's basically like a play, you know, like basically the whole thing takes place like in the barn where they're talking about this and, wow. and, and so it's just like amazing dialogue and like really letting actors sink their teeth into some, some meaty stuff and really, really wonderful. Um, yeah. I like stuff like that. I have not seen that particular movie yet. I think I've seen seven of the 10 best picture nominations, which is more for me usually than other years. Like I always feel like I have to catch up on a lot of stuff. Yeah, I have a lot less catch up this year. I've, I've, yeah. the old, I've seen nine of the 10. Um, I've only not seen triangle of sadness. So I uh, got to get around to that, but yeah, like most of the nominated things I've seen. So, but we, we will be having an episode coming up uh, talking about favorite film stuff of the year. I know that's that's sort of our favorite secondary topic on the show. Um, <laughs> it's what I, we talk about to stay sane when we're talking about all this other stuff. <laughs> it kind of, it kind of is. It kind of is. Uh, are you rooting for anybody in the Super Bowl? I guess I'm going for the Eagles. Uh, well, you know, fuck the 49ers. But yeah, yeah. I, I I think if the Cincinnati Bengals make it to the Super Bowl, I may just root for them because when's the last time they've won anything? When's the last time Cincinnati? Oh, yeah, they has didn't done actually win when they thing. were in it. So okay, yeah, man, I'll, 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 yeah, either. But I do two. like the Eagles. Okay. Yeah, so All right. okay, one of those. But anyways, we we should stop the fun talk right and we should uh oh yeah let's get into the super not yeah we stuff. gotta <laughs> no this is gonna be a fun no, this, this, this is, is gonna fun be a fun for me otherwise i wouldn't do it <laughs> absolutely yeah so on christian nationalism we have done pretty much two previous episodes episodes 70 and 71 with uh dr andre gagne and then um brad onishi who has his new book out preparing for war if you guys want to pick that up and we there's so much to cover on this topic because it is so relevant with what's going on in our country right now. And there's different strands that we can talk about. So we wanted to bring on another person to help us discuss uh, different angles of, unfortunately, this movement that's going on in our country right now. Yeah, yeah. Today we have uh, Dr. Matthew Taylor. He is the Protestant scholar at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies, as well as a faculty member in the theology department at Loyola University in Maryland. Uh, he's in Balmer uh, for, you, for you fans of The Wire, I suppose. Uh, he's also been a faculty member at Georgetown University and George Washington. Uh, and then he is the creator of the podcast series Charismatic Revival Fury, which was produced with our friend Brad Onishi and released through his uh, Straight White American Jesus podcast. I've I've listened to this series twice now. I honestly I think it's it's the best series of podcasts that that came out last year. Uh, came out sort of right at the end there, um, and I I think it's extremely necessary and and 
opened my eyes to a lot of things. So I'm really excited to have uh, Matt on today. So welcome to the show, Dr. Taylor. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, The show is called Charismatic Revival Fury, but that's not just the name of the show. It's it's not just a description of an action or whatever, but it's sort of you're looking, you know, yes, there's there's the new apostolic reformation, which we covered with Dr. Gagne when he was on here, but there's a lot of other groups and things involved in here and sort of that the churning mass of all of them and this angry prophetic actions and things is sort of what you what you call charismatic revival fury. Do you wanna do you wanna talk about just that 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 term and, and what that encompasses to you? Yeah, the central element of the uh, series is about the Capitol riot, January mm-hmm. 6th insurrection, and trying to understand where did this strange spirituality that we saw on display at the Capitol riot come from? That's really where I began in my research project. And over time, as I tried to figure out, well, who were the leaders behind this? What was the spirituality behind this? I was drawn to studying the New Apostolic Reformation and the role that these New Apostolic Reformation leaders played there. So Charismatic Revival Fury is my attempt to explain the kind of genre, the ethos of the Capitol Riot, and then try to trace back where did that come from? Where was that genre created by these NAR leaders? And then how does it show up on January 6th? How are we continuing to see manifestations of it after January 6th as it becomes more and more ingrained in right-wing politics? Yeah, I think a lot of us, when we were watching the riots, you know, we recognized, you know, the Christian flag. Um, you know, I had to pledge allegiance to it every morning for the first uh, 10 years of my life uh, or for school years. Um, but there's other flags there, uh, very specifically the appeal to heaven flag. There's 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 shofars, there's specific worship songs being sung and uh, people focused on on being engaged with uh, in, in spiritual warfare against the territorial spirits in DC, there's all this other stuff, and and you had a really neat term for that. Um, not necessarily for all those things I just mentioned, but but one of the things that your podcast introduces is this concept of prophetic memes, um, which I thought was a really useful term, a, a really great uh, a, a term, and I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean by prophetic memes and maybe give some examples of of ones that that were present on January 6th. Yeah, so what we're what we're looking at in the series um is it's the segment of the Pentecostal charismatic world that's called the independent charismatic world. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different forms of charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity, but this is the non-denominational segment of Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement. So the kind of loose affiliations, it's this kind of amorphous world with mega churches and all these kind of autonomous ministries. And so when you're looking at that kind of a space, they don't have statements of faith that unify everyone. They don't have um, uh, kind of agreed to leadership hierarchies, but instead what they have are what I call prophetic memes. These ideas that are coming through people that are considered prophets um, that are seen as revelatory, that are seen as brought by God, and then they get carried by charismatic media, places like 
Charisma News or Elijah List or God TV, this kind mm-hmm. of infrastructure of charismatic media that has grown up in the last 20 or 30 years that had, did not really exist before that. And so these ideas become attached to particular leaders and then become spread throughout the independent charismatic world. So to give a couple of examples, the seven mountains, seven mountains of culture or the seven mountains of society, this is an idea I mean, it has very deep roots. It goes all the way back to um, neo-Calvinism and um, Abraham Kuyper, um, a, a kind of turn of the century European politician and theologian. But it, it's actually coined by a leader named Lance Wall now, is the one who comes up with this idea of attaching mountain imagery and dividing up society into these seven different mountains. And um, this was really a key justification for charismatic Christians who supported Donald Trump. And the idea of the seven mountains is you divide society up into these seven different segments, government, education, the family, uh, business and commerce. And Christians are supposed to take over those mountains. And there's this idea of spiritual warfare battling for conquest of the mountains. And if Christians can take the high places, can take the tops of the mountains, then Christian influence can flow downward. And so a lot of the justification for people supporting Donald Trump was framed in this kind of seven mountains idea that if Donald Trump can take the top of the government mountain on behalf of Christians, then this Christian influence will flow downward. And so very much this idea of combative kind of attacks on these, this idea we we need to either Satan and the demons rule the tops of the mountains or the kingdom of God rules the tops. It's very binary kind of conception. Yeah, um, and before, before Lance came up with the mountain imagery, there was talk of like the spheres of influence and stuff. And, and, and you talk about how kind of the, the genius of that pivot is the inherent challenge that it gives people to, to climb that mountain, to take charge of that mountain. Um, mountains are, are things that, that, humans have always wanted to conquer humans have inherently just always wanted to conquer these mountains and there's something we can get to later about like a literal conquering of a mountain that that occurred which i watched a whole documentary on youtube about today uh but uh but yeah it really like it gave that idea of the spheres this extra oomph that i know when we had dr gagne on he 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 talked about um Lance Walno as as an entrepreneur more than anything. Like he's he's a guy that looks for angles. Uh he looks for things to exploit and and business opportunities and motivational things. And and the mountains really became what what I think in, in the, the show you call like really the, the the greatest prophetic meme of them all. Yeah, and Walnow is an entrepreneur, but I think um, one of the, the things that I'm trying to bring to this conversation about the, the New Apostolic Reformation and really this independent charismatic world is the influence of these ideas is, uh, it's difficult to even overestimate how far that idea has traveled, how influential it has been. Uh, I gave an academic paper on Lance Walnow recently, where I argued that he may be the most influential evangelical political theologian of the 21st century. That this this idea you can you can laugh at it you can kind of say oh that that's kind of goofy but people have really attached themselves to this idea and you think about when Walnow is this key figure in endorsing Donald Trump he's also the one who brings out this prophetic meme about Trump as Cyrus the kind of Persian Mm -hmm. emperor who's going to protect the the Jewish people or 
conservative Christians taken and that back all from, came from like from like the 45th chapter of the book that Cyrus appears in and he's going to be the 45th president the numerology <laughs> stuff drives me crazy I, I saw I saw a video of Johnny Enlow today who who I think he was the first one to put out a book with the seven mountains in the title that yep. conquering the seven mountains. Right. And he was like, Oh yeah. You know, we had a prophecy about what's going to happen that like the, the last weekend of NFL scores shows that we were right. Because if you add up the total of the points by the winning teams, and then for some reason you subtract the total of one from the other for the losing teams, um, then you get like this number that corresponds to this, the, the, this one chapter of, of Psalms and, and then the other <laughs> number is the verse that it would be. And, and we'd been meditating on that verse. And so when this showed up, when the scores of these NFL games happened, it was just like, boom, <laughs> look what God's doing. It's like accounting. There's a bunch of tricks you can do. I just, they have an endless reservoir of, of, of bullshit to draw from. It just, but en Enloe is, is a serious fellow. I mean, he, yeah. he is one is very influential in that world has a big following. He's kind of mentored in some ways by wall now. Um, mm -hmm. And as you said, he puts out one of the first of these seven mountains books. There's many of those books now. Um, but Enloe is also one of the leaders in the NAR world who has really embraced QAnon. And go oh, yeah. around the bend on QAnon. So, right, that these these kind of ideas or these movements merge together in confusing but important ways. We brought him and up a just... few months ago when when Roe v. Wade was overturned. He had a post about the Westminster Dog Show having predicted that they was coming because a bloodhound named Trumpet won, and and it, it you could call a trumpet a trump, and 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 uh, was that bloodhound like? like sniffs out what's going on. Like they can, they figure out they're getting to the bottom of things and that's, and that's what's going on here in our government or whatever. It was insane. I mean, you gotta, you gotta give them points at some level for the creativity of, you know, finding this stuff. I, yeah. It, I mean, it truly is uh truly is incredible. Uh, Prof Matthew, uh, you know, you're, you're obviously an expert on this topic of, of charismatics that, you know, you, the information you provided in the straight white American uh, Jesus podcast with your charismatic revival fury. I'm I'm interested to know what's what's your background with evangelical Christianity or more specifically with uh, Pentecostalism or uh, being in the charismatic church. Uh, do you have a personal history and feel free to share as much as you want. But I'm curious about your own journey with the faith. Yeah, so um, when I was born, um, my dad had just left pastoral staff on a little church called Grace Community that is led by John MacArthur. Um, oh. So I uh, grew up in Southern California. My my family was in some ways kind of theologically forced out of John MacArthur's church. Um, it was a very disillusioning experience for my parents um, and having a young family. And so they got very connected you to... A group and, of sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was wondering if you can share some of the you know because I I am familiar with John MacArthur's teaching quite a bit. Um, what were some of the issues, if you don't mind sharing, that you guys got forced out on? So this was the late seventies. I was born in nineteen eighty, um, and uh, Grace had taken off. Grace Community had just taken off, become a mega church in the space of about a decade. Um, and my dad was pastor on the pastoral staff there, and he um, was with a group of other pastors who felt that um, the church should diversify its leadership 
should not all just be the John MacArthur show and um, should uh, there should be kind of greater uh, democracy, I guess, in the in the leadership of the church. And if anyone has ever encountered John MacArthur before, <laughs> that's not really his his gig. <laughs> so he said, it's my way or the highway. And about a third of the pastoral staff left at the same time, including my, my parents. Um, and so my 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 parents were pretty disillusioned by that. And there was a group of families that were also kind of refugees from Grace Community that decided, well, we're going to go the opposite direction and we're going to go kind of form our own community. And they started renting a farm up there in Washington State in the Mount Rainier area. And so I, I grew up for a couple of years of my childhood on this farm with like six or seven other families. Um, it was vaguely kind of apocalyptic kind of I mean this is the right 1970s 1980s this kind of move towards uh apocalypticism the end of the world yeah, vaguely yeah. charismatic uh some of the people in the community were very charismatic in every sense of that word and um the whole thing wound up breaking up there was actually a, a pastor from the, a vineyard church in Southern California who came up to uh, Washington and intervened in the community and said, this is very unhealthy and toxic. This thing's about to become a cult. You need to leave. And my, my so, parents so left So that was a day. vineyard church? Yeah, it was a vineyard church. Okay, because I grew up in a vineyard church um, that was founded by somebody that came up from California uh, from, like, he was involved at the start. Um, he just died, like, two months ago or something. Um, but, yeah, that and, until that that became a community church. 20 years ago or so. So yeah. it became an independent charismatic church. Um, but yeah, that was the majority of my experience. And it was, it was kind of wild, you know, in the Toronto blessing era, like I remember a girl running around the room and squawking like a chicken during youth group. And people were just like, yeah, that's the spirit. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was something. So we we attended vineyard churches for a little while, attended four square churches, wound yep. up at an evangelical right free church. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I then I went off to college. I, I did kind of Christian schooling um, for elementary, middle and high school. Um, and then uh, went to college and joined InterVarsity Christian Fellowship there. Uh, wound up coming on staff with InterVarsity for about seven years. This was all in Southern California. And um, if, if you've ever spent time around Southern California churches, there's just kind of a, a charismatic ethos, really. And I mean, Vineyard comes out of Southern California, Calvary Chapel, a lot of yeah. these independent charismatic, even the New Apostolic Reformation in some ways comes out of Southern California and Fuller Seminary. So then I wound up going to Fuller Seminary um, and getting a master's there. Um, and it was around the leaving the time of leaving Fuller and leaving InterVarsity that I just realized I'm not really evangelical anymore. That, that um, theology, that identity doesn't really fit me. My, my wife and I have landed in mainline Protestantism. Um, and then I got a PhD studying Islam and religious pluralism at Georgetown and um, now work in the kind of interreligious dialogue space. And from here, so that's that's your own personal history. And I think maybe for us and some of our listeners, it might be helpful since we are talking about mainly Christian nationalism from the, the charismatic and Pentecostal side. Um, maybe we should do a brief history of uh, the revival on Azusa Street, um, which really, my understanding is launched the modern, you know, charismatic movement. And also in 1994, uh, Zach mentioned the Toronto Blessing. There have been different steps along the way. Do you want to give just a brief summary? I mean, there's obviously probably a lot of details out there, but maybe just the main points of the, the charismatic history that leads up to 
you know, this modern Christian nationalism has become such a feature, at least in some of the movement. Yeah, yeah. Pentecostalism has a lot of deep roots in the Wesleyan holiness tradition in uh, Christianity. Um, but really, it, it kind of launches or at least becomes very visible starting in around 1906, 1907 in Los Angeles in Azusa Street, which is called the Azusa Street Revival. And out of that, you have this kind of outpouring of exuberant spirituality, people speaking in tongues, people believing in miracles. It's very, very, again, apocalyptic, the sense that we're living in the end times. Um, and then over time, Pentecostalism becomes enshrined within denominations, kind of following the path of most religious traditions in the U.S. Um, in the 1940s, there's a movement called the Latter Rain Movement that we get into a little bit in Charismatic Revival Fury. It's kind of an offshoot of um, Pentecostalism that um, is very, very important for the formation of the National Reformation. It's where you first start hearing these ideas of modern day apostles and prophets and um, some of the roots even of chari uh, charismatic Messianic Judaism also go back to um, the latter reign movement. In the 1950s and 1960s, that energy of Pentecostalism kind of crosses over from the Pentecostal denominations and starts to spread into Catholicism, into mainline Protestantism. So you'll find churches today that are charismatic and Lutheran or charismatic and Catholic communities that are Episcopal charismatic. Um, and so these are that's kind of the 1950s, 1960s, you start to see that. And then out of that latter rain movement, really starting in the 1960s and 1970s, you have the kind of growth of this independent charismatic world that we're focused on in the series. Uh, the Jesus People movement in the late 1960s is very important for this. This is where you start getting the Vineyard and Calvary Chapel um, and kind of hippies all becoming uh, Christians and kind of maintaining some of their hippiness, but also wanting to attach this charismatic Christianity to it. And um, so, but that, that independent charismatic world was kind of bumping along. You had the vineyard. Um, and then in 1994, a revival breaks out in Toronto, Canada, at the vineyard church in Toronto, it's called the Toronto blessing. Um, and this is really a, a, a moment of kind of polarization, but also of congealing in that world. And the Toronto blessing the, the, the main manifestation of it was what they called holy laughter. People kind of have, having these fits of laughter that would last for 20 minutes, sometimes hours of just feeling like the Holy Spirit was filling them with this uh, exuberant joy. Sometimes people would manifest using animal sounds, as you're talking about, barking like mm -hmm. dogs or squawking like chickens. Um, and this was very controversial in the vineyard movement and winds up splitting the vineyard movement. And so was John Wayne in the spirit stuff. Uh, pre-existing to that or did that kick that stuff up a notch it definitely pre-existed that but it really popularized being slain okay. in the spirit as well yeah and, i remember everybody uh, wanting that <laughs> <laughs> and in and, and john wimber who's the kind of uh figurehead of the vineyard movement um really wants vineyard to main, remain mainstream wants it to remain kind of in the evangelical mainstream and so he winds up saying to these toronto blessing vineyard churches you're just, you got to go do your own thing. You can't be vineyard anymore. And really, in some ways, that's that's the seedbed for the New Apostolic Reformation is a lot of these people who are disassociating from the vineyard, uh, who are embracing this Toronto spirituality, this more kind of exuberant, kind of wild spirituality and want to go further with that, begin, become some of the first people who join this NAR movement. That's interesting because didn't Wimber and C. Peter Wagner like teach to, together um at 
Fuller. Is that am I getting this right? Yeah. Okay, because yeah. C. Peter Wagner is is the founder that he coined the term the New Apostolic Reformation. He's you know one of the difficulties in in establishing who is and isn't connected to that is you know he's the guy and he's dead now and and a lot of people don't really want to be public about their affiliation. It's a loose affiliation generally. So I know in your podcast you you sort of like you you leave that to like people that can can be verifiably connected to see Peter Wagner somehow. Um, but it, it sounds like you say, so Wimber was like not cool with that stuff, but Wagner went full bore on it and, and created the new, the NAR movement. So, but so was, were, uh, were Wimber and Wagner teaching together before the, the Toronto blessing then? And did they, did their relationship uh, split due to that or, or what happened with them? Yeah, so Wagner was was a longtime professor at Fuller Seminary. His area was what was called church growth, this idea of combining kind of sociological observation with theology to help churches grow and kind of manufacture church growth. And Wimber was kind of into that in the 1970s and early 1980s. He's kind of mentored by Wagner, but then also kind of mentored Wagner into some of this charismatic stuff. And so I think it was 1982 this got started really running through about 1985 wagner decided he was going to really go experimental with his courses at fuller and so he invites john wimber in um, to actually teach these courses wimber didn't have a doctorate um he just had a master's um but wagner kind of was the instructor of record but he just kind of sat in the back of the class and let wimber do everything mm. so wimber would lecture for about half an hour 45 minutes and then say all right now we're going to do it and would instruct the stuff we're going to do the stuff and so he instructs the students in how do you hear a word of knowledge from the holy spirit and then speak it how do you prophesy how do you heal um and so it it became a kind of laboratory for experimenting in these charismatic gifts and this was very controversial at fuller you had hundreds of students wanting to audit these classes to get around wimber and see these miracles that were ostensibly going on but then the rest of the Fuller faculty felt like this is supposed to be a four credit course and we're supposed to be a, a mainstream evangelical seminary. This does not seem like what we want to have going on. And so it, it was very popular and then also controversial. It's like Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> it has an element of that. And, and, um, and Wimber was just an incredibly compelling person. And so everyone wanted to kind of be around him. Um, it, the rest of the Fuller faculty wind up intervening and shut down the course, get it modified, try to try to kind of get rid of it. Um, and Wimber and Wagner actually had a bit of a falling out, not so much over that as over um, Wagner's views of spiritual warfare, which we get into in the series as well. Um, Wagner really goes to the extreme end on the spiritual warfare, starts believing in these territorial spirits that um, Christians are supposed to take on the principalities and powers that are talked about in the book of Ephesians and that they're developing these elaborate strategies. And Wimber really thought that that was, that was really too intense and really thought that was even dangerous. Uh, And so he started kind of distancing himself from Wagner. And then by the time Toronto blessing happened, I mean, Wimber was open to the Toronto blessing at the start and then ultimately decided he, he was against it. And so in some ways, a lot of the people that were most interested and excited about this Toronto stuff who were attached to Wimber 
wind up kind of moving more Wagner's direction once Wimber kind of disassociates himself from the Toronto Blessing. One of the key figures in this is a guy named Che On, who had studied yeah. under both of them at, at Fuller and becomes really important to the NAR. And I, we do a whole profile of him. Yeah, yeah. What you what you cover on him was fantastic. Uh, he was mentioned just a little bit by, by Dr. Gagne when we had him on, um, but we really didn't get very far in, into his story. And and he is a major, you know. If anything, I could. He's to me. I felt like he is the major figure of of your series. You know, he essentially takes the mantle from from C. Peter Wagner and is sort of the the head apostle <laughs> of 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 the NAR these days. Um. And and yeah, I, I, there was some interesting um talk about Cheon, um. In, in that he, he's Korean American and and Brad and you talked on the episode about the difference between Christian supremacy and white Christian nationalism. Yeah, you, you said it makes more sense to talk about Cheon as a Christian supremacist. Uh, I know David said several times yeah. that this episode is about Christian nationalism. I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, so what what is the difference between those terms and, and why is it important that we distinguish one from the other here? So the way that I talk about Christian nationalism and people have different definitions of it, but Christian nationalism is this blending of Americana and sense of national identity with one's Christian identity. And so you get the elements of nationalism, right, a sort of xenophobia, uh, fixation with the nation state, a fixation with uh, God's particular relationship with a single nation, and then that gets blended in with Christian theology. Um, and Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, these are real things. These are real demographic forces in the United States. And the NAR contributes to that and participates in that. And yet, at the same time, it's bigger than that, and it's more international. So for the NAR, it's a very international movement, right? Cheon is Korean American. He's actually an immigrant, comes to the U.S. as a child. As he has, governs a, a national or an international uh, network, this apostolic network that he has, that has is in 65 different countries with 25,000 ministries or more attached to Cheon as their apostle. It sounds and like so, South America in particular is a pretty, pretty big uh, focus, right? South America, uh, South Korea, um, mm. Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you have people all over the world who are looking to Cheon as their leader. So Cheon speaks on January 5th, the day before the Capitol riot at one of these big kind of ramp up rallies in D.C. And gives this whole apostolic declaration about Donald Trump. Um, and God, we're going to kind of make Donald Trump the president again, and we're going to rule and reign through Donald Trump under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that has elements of Christian nationalism in it. But you can't only isolate Cheon down to Christian nationalism because he is interested in this kind of international Christian supremacy. So the way that I define Christian supremacy is that it's kind of the extreme end of the Christian nationalism spectrum. A lot of Christian nationalism is just kind of vague sentimental, like, uh, I like God bless America. I like having a, a Christian flag and the American flag in my church, right? It's not, it's not theological in a deep sense. 
these Christian supremacy movements are much more theological, right? And so what the NAR does is they combine this kind of seven mountains and what's called dominion theology, the, the idea that church is supposed to take dominion, and they extend that to every society and say the, the Christians should rule over every society. And they have a very elaborate theological program and justification for why they think Christians are just better than other people. And Christians should have a, a superior form of citizenship. And it, it, at times it even verges on a, a sort of authoritarianism. They're, they're not as attached to democracy because they want to see Christians ruling over. They believe God has destined Christians to rule over every country. Now, you're talking a lot about, um, obviously, big leaders in the charismatic movement. How much does do you think this... Um, trickles down, for lack of a better word, to people in the pews. Um, because as Zach mentioned before, I, I don't really have a charismatic background. I, I've known, I've had Pentecostal friends who who are wonderful people. Um, and I imagine, you know, if you go into a charismatic or Pentecostal church, I mean, I, I come more from the reform side, so I've been more in those churches. The average person you would meet is definitely probably politically conservative to one extent or another. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are a nationalist in the sense that they want, or a supremacist, where they want to have the government force people to be to be Christian. What what percentage, you know, how, how I guess how big is this Christian supremacy and Christian nationalism movement? Like how much does this actually go down to people, ordinary people just in the pews? So I wouldn't define Christian supremacy as necessarily people wanting to force people to become Christian so much as wanting Christians to rule over society, right? The, okay. the, the thing about the NAR is they believe, right, again, that the supernatural is right adjacent to the natural and constantly breaking in. And so their belief is not that anyone will be forced to convert, but that there will be a massive end times revival of the church where more than a billion people and will become charismatic Christians. And that in, its, in and of itself will transform societies. So they, they're always blending together this idea of revival and then the transformation of societies. And they always, they, so they would, they would balk at the idea of forcing anyone to convert. They would say that, no, once the revival comes, everyone will convert on their own. But then they also want to take over the seven mountains in order to kind of engineer that revival and that transformation. So there's there's elements of societal takeover in there too. Um, in terms of the people in the pews, um, if you if you actually get to the root of some of these prophetic memes, the seven mountains, one of the other memes that shows up a lot in the Capitol Riot is something called the Appeal to Heaven campaign with these Appeal to Heaven flags. Um, and if you get to the root of those things, the people who are following those really believe in this idea of an end times revival, this idea of Christian supremacy, though they wouldn't use that terminology, but the, the seven mountains is very much this idea of conquest taking over the seven mountains. Um, I can say this, if you go into the Facebook feeds of the people who were there on January 6th, what you see is not only Christians who are perpetrating these memes, you see hundreds, thousands of their friends who are spurring them on. 
and saying, yes, this is what we're, we're trying. We're interceding for you. We're doing spiritual warfare for you. Mm-hmm. Take those mountains, right? Appeal to heaven, right? Uh, the, the, those memes, those ideas are getting constantly perpetrated. Now, I, I tend to focus more on the leaders because I think they're, it's a lot easier to track the leaders of this stuff. And I think they are the ones who are most responsible for it. But these ideas have penetrated a huge swath of American Christianity and global Christianity um, and become very, very influential there. Um, Again, because they're non-denominational, it's hard to track how many, but I would estimate in the millions, maybe into the tens of millions of American Christians. I think listening to Lauren Boebert is really helpful for understanding what somebody in the pews is getting at this point. She's not a religious leader. She is she is a strongly religious person who up until a few years ago was just somebody who would have been in the pews. Um, and I, I know you listened. I, I listened to her interview with with Sean Foyt, and she's she's using the term in the natural over and over and over about, you know, the battles. That they fight. You know, yes, that's how it looks in the natural. But we know that what's really going on is, you know, the spiritual war for this battle. And she's talking about a victorious eschatology. Um, and and that's something that that is more of a, a new understanding for me. And I, I was thinking of it earlier when you were talking, you know, talking about you were raised in an environment that was very apocalyptic and, and the end times and the rapture. And that, that, you know, that's what charismatics in the 70s and 80s were into. That's what my parents were into. And and it's those same people that have just totally flipped. And I think stuff like the Seven Mountains has has given them a way of of seeing a positive spin on an apocalypse um, where where yeah Lauren Bobert is excited for the end times not just because of all of her enemies being thrown into the lake of fire but because Christians will be in charge of everything because that's what triggers the return of Jesus and Christians being in charge of everything means life is going to be awesome because we're the best at running things um so I see her as as somebody that that is downstream but has a microphone, um, somebody that that reflects pretty well what the sort of folks in the pews are probably picking up. Does that yeah, sound when, right? When you listen to certain um, right wing politicians and they're trying to navigate these charismatic worlds, many of them you can tell they don't know the vocabulary, they don't know the lingo. And so they're kind of trying to make it work like Michael Flynn talking about spiritual warfare. And you can <laughs> tell he's trying to figure this stuff out, but he doesn't really understand it. Yeah. Lauren Bobert is a native speaker. I Absolutely. don't know everything about her kind of church background. You can, when you listen to her speak, she speaks charismatic fluently. And um, in this idea of um, a, a, a victorious eschatology. If you think back to the most of the history of the, the 20th century evangelical movement and world, most evangelicals are premillennialist, right? We don't have to get into all the complexities of premillennialism, but the, the, the general idea of premillennialism is you're you're pessimistic about yeah. society. Everything is going to get about awful. The end of the world. Yeah, everything's yeah. going to get worse and worse and worse. And the then Jesus will come and rapture <laughs> all the Christians away. And then it's really going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And then you're going to have the battle of Armageddon, right? Yeah. And um, so the, the, there was a kind of a, a, a built-in despair about society. There's a part of premillennialism, especially dispensational premillennialism. That's not eschatology it's not the view of the end of the world that these folks have in their view they might still be premillennialists in some technical sense but they believe the church is supposed to just keep fighting 
until the end. Lance Wall now and some of the other people in this movement like to take that image in Matthew chapter 25 of the sheep nations and the goat nations, right, that are getting judged mm -hmm. by Jesus. And he says, we can make a lot of these nations sheep nations. There's no reason why the U.S. should not be a sheep nation. And so, right, this idea of taking over the seven mountains, okay, we can take over the U.S. We can turn it into a sheep nation. It can be a nation aligned with Jesus at the end of time. And so the idea is that the, the church has to keep battling. And even in this, this uh, recent podcast where um, Sean Foyt is interviewing Lauren Boebert, she makes this comment about, you know, we're going to be fighting so hard. The church is going to be fighting so hard until the end that you're going to see Satan begging Jesus to come back because he's gotten his ass whooped by us so much, right? <laughs> That's that victorious eschatology kind of idea. The church may still be persecuted, and these folks really claim to be very persecuted, but we're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep pushing back. Another point, Lauren Boebert, uh, maybe six months ago or so, made this comment um, that got a lot of coverage, where she said, the government is not supposed to tell the church what to do. The church is supposed to tell the government what to do. That is a right. very good crystallization yeah. of this uh, ecclesia, dominion, seven mountains theology, right? That she she could that, that you could put that quote in the 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 lips of any NAR leader, and it would feel very comfortable to them, right? So she, I, I, again, I'm not, not entirely sure where she comes from, but she is kind of living in that charismatic soup that they're part of. Certainly seems like uh, they want the First Amendment overthrown and uh, the Establishment Clause in there. Um, we've mentioned General Michael Flynn, who is Irish Catholic, and also Sean Foyt, who I think you call the hipster traveling worship personality or something in the charismatic revival theory. I, I, I prefer um, the, the comparison to him being like a blonde Weird Al, but... There you go. Because <laughs> that Weird Al movie that came out with Daniel Radcliffe is pretty funny. It's great. But... um. Yeah, General Michael Flynn and Sean Foyt uh, had some joint uh, worship sessions together, like as an Irish Catholic, and Sean Foyt is more charismatic. And we've talked a little bit about this before, but I think, you know, Zach and I are continually interested in kind of the syncretism going on, because um, we've been talking a lot about the charismatic camp, but we can go into the reform camp, which is more my people, where I come from, and two uh, pretty good selling books have been on Amazon this past year defending Christian nationalism from the reform side. Uh, one by Stephen Wolf. There's there's another one, I think, by Andrew Torba, who runs uh, Gab, the social media site. And so, you know, these camps like Reformed and um, Charismatic could not be more different theologically. I mean, I, I know you mentioned that you uh your your family went to Grace Community Church with John MacArthur and John MacArthur coming out of the forum camp would think many charismatics are are heretics. Um I think Hank Hanegraaff came out of that um movement and he wrote Counterfeit Revival in the 90s, kind of you know, calling charismatics basically not real Christians, you know, that they're they're um they're heretics or whatever. Um, but it seems like even with these different theologies, Irish Catholic reformed charismatic there's now this center point where some of these movements are coming together because of the same political goals and and that that is this either nationalism or christian supremacy i mean are you seeing that too is there kind of a joining because of common politics yes um so 
one thing we we do tend to draw lines between the reformed world and the charismatic world um and a lot of the sharpest critics in the evangelical world of the NAR and of the independent charismatics come out of that reformed background john macarthur may be being foremost among them mm-hmm. the the thing is that there's actually been a lot of uh, cross pollination between reformed theology and the independent charismatics Back in the 1970s, 1980s, there was a group of kind of hyper-Calvinist uh, leaders called the Reconstructionists. They were R.J. Rushduni and Gary North, um, very much in this Christian supremacy, dominion theology mode. And they recognized that their ideas were not um, going to, they, they were very intellectual, and their reformed theology was not going to spread that far. But they also recognized that this independent charismatic world was growing rapidly. And so they even went to some of these charismatic conferences and brought their ideas and spoke about them there. And so this dominion theology, this idea of Christians taking dominion over society, actually goes back to some of these reformed reconstructionists who were trying to push their ideas out into the charismatic world. The Gary North, who was uh, R.J. Rushduni's son-in-law, used to say, we can be the light and the charismatics can be the heat. Right. So there's this idea of the the charismatics being the foot soldiers of this kind of originally reformed kind of idea of dominion theology. And you see that still today. You can still see some of those ideas. And so I I think what you have is is a marriage of convenience in many ways. You have different forms of Christian supremacy, right? This more reconstructionist reformed background one, this more independent charismatic one, even within the, the Roman Catholic world, forms of Catholic integralism, which is this very intellectual kind of style of Christian nationalism or of kind of Christian supremacy, but they all can kind of pool together and band together because the cultural battles, um, they more or less sync up. They're all anti-trans rights. They're all anti-LGBTQ rights. They're all anti-abortion. And the fine points of theology among them don't matter quite as much right now because they see themselves as all being on the same side. If you go back into the 1980s, there was a, a famous um, philosopher of the religious right named Francis Schaeffer. And Schaeffer used to use the term uh, in reference to Mormons and conservative Catholics, and evangelicals, we can be co-belligerents, right? Belligerents are people who are fighting against something. Well, we're co-belligerents. We don't agree on everything, but at least we're all in battling against the same causes. And then we can let the differences kind of recede into the background. Yeah, there's a point in your... In your show, we have a clip of Cheyenne talking about uh, witnessing to a woman on a plane or something who's who's Catholic, and he says, so, you know, so she's not saved, and, and convert. So like, you know, these people are like working with Michael Flynn, but they don't they don't think he's even a Christian or whatever. It's it's wild. mentioned a little bit earlier um but i want to make sure that we get to this while we have time uh in in episode four you mentioned an event in which a group of charismatics climbed mount everest in order to fight a demon called the queen of heaven uh the mission was called operation ice castle and c peter wagner wrote a short book about it called confronting the queen of heaven which you note is very easy to find by just googling the pdf i read it it's it's like 40 pages 
Um, and I watched an hour long documentary about it, uh, on, uh, uh, Anna Mendez Farrell's YouTube page that she, she was one of the, uh, prophets or apostles who was there. Um, I highlighted some things. It was so much of it just struck me as these people are just pulling this out of their asses, but, um, you know, Wagner even says, like in the intro, he says, uh, even 10 years ago, we did not have the vocabulary to describe what is almost commonplace these days, such as strategic level spiritual warfare, spiritual mapping, identification, uh, identificational repentance and prayer evangelism. The issue of divine timing raises the question as to why God would have waited until now to release the church for such a massive assault on the kingdom of Satan. Yeah, you know, so like... These are not part of the Christian tradition. They've existed for 10 years at this point, but they're all super legit, I promise. Um, and so so then when he starts talking about like figuring out why they're going to Mount Everest, he says, the Queen of Heaven is another name for Diana of Ephesus, which we mentioned in the Bible, which in the Greek would be Artemis. But also uh, she is Turkey's moon goddess, Japan's sun goddess, Mexico's virgin of Guadalupe. That's quite quite something to throw in there and and uh and he 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 mentions uh or or she says uh she she's known as the virgin of guadalupe or like nepal where she is sagarmatha or of cities like calcutta where she is described as kali and he says the, the she is the chief territorial spirit over ephesus in asia minor i'll note that mexico is in neither of those um <laughs> And, and so he drops this in Nepal. She is Sagarmatha. Later on, he explains what Sagarmatha is, and that is like the native name for Mount Everest, which, which translates to Mother of the Universe. So because of that, they know that that is the same thing as the Queen of Heaven. And so clearly they are being called to climb Mount Everest to, as I saw in the documentary, um, shake a bunch of knives at the at the mountain peaks <laughs> um burn Mus uh buddhist prayer flags uh scrape jesus into snow and try to convert their sherpas in a very awkward sort of stage crucifixion thing that they definitely did not understand what <laughs> is this thing and what gives this legitimacy to other people in this movement so again this stuff is easy for us to mock as outsiders very easy <laughs> <laughs> and and yet i try to take it as seriously as i can because even that event as i try to show in charismatic revival fury is a precursor to the capital riot so wagner in the 1990s is a leader in what's called the prayer movement which is this kind of charismatic movement, mobilization. The big idea in the prayer movement, at least the big campaign they are pursuing is what's called the 1040 window campaign, where there's this idea of the, the 1040 window that's between the 10 degrees and 40 degrees latitude that stretches across North Africa and much of Central Asia, which is the most, at least as they interpret it, most unchristianized part of the globe. If I can interject and, very briefly, a, a, a listener today when we were coming up with names for ex-evangelical weed stores, because uh, I, I, I said uh, unequally toked. He said the 10-420 window. And uh, <laughs> I think he wins. <laughs> so the, 
but but Wagner is very important in in perpetuating this idea of the 1040 window, mobilizing prayer around this. I mean, he's he's organizing hundreds of thousands, millions of people in prayer. I mean, my the church I was going to growing up was not charismatic, but we were praying for the 1040 window, right? These ideas mm-hmm. were were really mm-hmm. spreading far. And so then Wagner's also blending this with this idea of what he calls strategic level spiritual warfare, that there are these hierarchies of demons who have taken over huge swaths of the globe. And we need to, if the church is going to advance, we need to push back against those demons and create strategies for conquering those demons. And so they, as they're praying for the 1040 window, they come to believe through different prophecies that we need to cast out the queen of heaven who has her throne on Mount Everest. And so this group of 30 intercessors with, again, thousands of people praying for them, Go up the side of Mount Everest to do battle with the Queen of Heaven, including Peter Wagner's wife, Doris, is in this group. And also Becca Greenwood, who's mentored by Doris Wagner, who's a mentee of Peter Wagner and shows up at the Capitol riot, also goes on this Operation Ice Castle to pray against the Queen of Heaven. So the the ideas of, I mean, at least when you ask about legitimacy, the idea that I could, as, as a lowly human being, could be involved in cosmic battles with high-level demons, that I could be part of a spiritual warfare campaign, that I, as, as an intercessor, could play a role in casting out one of the most powerful demons in the world. This is very exciting for a lot of people. And this idea of kind of very uh, highly organized and orchestrated spiritual warfare campaigns that is, that is one of the central factors in what happens on January 6th, right? January 6th is the culmination of another one of these spiritual warfare campaigns coordinated by Wagner's disciples in order to see the election overturned, or as they would, would understand it, to see the stealing of the election by demons stopped, put to an end in the spirit realm. Do you know if they've named the territorial spirit over DC? You know, the... the the way the territorial spirits concept works is they, they the different territorial spirits can rule over different areas. So what Che On says in his January 5th speech is that the spirit of Jezebel has taken mm-hmm. over the White House and the Capitol building. And, and he attaches this to a messianic prophet um, named Jonathan Kahn. And this, yes. is a, this is a long-standing trope um, in the charismatic mm-hmm. world. The spirit of That's Jezebel. That's one of the first guys that I encountered. A few years ago, early in the Trump presidency, where it's like, oh, this stuff is off the rails. Yeah, Jonathan Kahn is wild. And Jonathan Kahn was the keynote speaker at the Jericho March in December of 2020. He was the if you watch the videos, he's he gives this like 20 minute address at the end of the Jericho March, um, call, calling on people, drawing all these parallels between ancient Israel and modern yeah. America. Um, but he he's the the problem. But he's not the only one. I mean, a lot of people have been talking about the Jezebel spirit for a very long time. Yeah. Um, people also talk about the spirit of Leviathan. Some of the, the mm-hmm. people who were there interceding, so Cindy Jacobs and Becca Greenwood, both leaders in the NAR, are there at the Capitol on January 6th. And one of the, the demons they're praying against is, is the spirit of Leviathan, which is often associated with the media, um, with chaos and confusion. Um, so the, the, they don't, it's not, it's not quite as simple as like, oh, there's one demon over each city. 
it's more like different sections of cities or different spaces can be dominated by a, a demon or multiple demons. And if they can name those demons, they can cast them out using apostolic and prophetic authority. Like the, like the demons have their own spiritual mountains. Right. They are. Yeah. And so they mix and match or whatever. And so a bunch of these, these, these folks connected to Peter Wagner that were there on January 6th and, and help, help um, organize and, got the permits and things like that uh, are specifically connected to Wagner via this Eagle's Nest group. Can you Eagle's explain Vision that? Apostolic e Team. Eagle's Vision Apostolic Team, sorry. Yeah, Eagle's so, Nest. <laughs> so Eagle's There's Nest so was many Hitler. terms. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Reasonable um, thing to connect here. Okay. So, so what Wagner does when he's building the, the, this thing that he calls the New Apostolic Reformation is he creates all these different institutions. Um, so one of them is the International Coalition of Apostles, which is kind of a professional networking organization for apostles. The Apostolic Council of Prophetic Elders that Cindy Jacobs leads. Wagner Leadership Institute, which is kind of a, a training institute that he hands off to Che on. And then his the, the most intimate circle, the inner circle of Wagner, of everything that Wagner's doing is called his Eagles Vision Apostolic Team. And he, he tried to cap it at about 25 people. Um, starts in 2002, ends with his death in 2016. It kind of disbands at his death. When he retires in 2010, he hands off all of these different institutions to different people, different ones of his mentees. But the Eagles Vision Apostolic Team, he doesn't hand off to anyone because that's his mm -hmm. kind of inner circle. It's a, and they, the, the people in EVAT would call themselves Peter Wagner's spiritual sons and daughters. And he would right. talk about himself as their spiritual father, as yeah. their apostle. Um, so those are the people that uh, are, are, are most at the, the molten core of the New Apostolic Reformation, really bought into what Peter Wagner's about. And I track five of them who were there in some form on January 6th and who, and a, a number more of them, maybe about a dozen total who were participating in this um, stop the steal campaign, mobilizing Christians, gathering mm -hmm. Christians in this kind of post-election season leading up to January 6th. So the, these EVAT members um, are very, very important for what happens on January 6th. And they all are again, very attached to Peter Wagner and his ideas. Che Cheon being one of the, the 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 five or a dozen, even though he he said that he didn't go to the Capitol because he fell asleep. Um, you don't really give your opinion on that necessarily, but I'm kind of interested to know. <laughs> like, come on, I I, I have interviewed Cheon. Um, I have not. I I've never caught him in a lie. Um, okay. so I've looked for evidence that he. So according, according to his story that he tells his church after January 6th, um, he went to the rally that Donald Trump spoke at. And then because he's an old man and needed to use the bathroom, he went back to his hotel room and decided to take a power nap and slept through the Capitol riot. I, I have looked for evidence to that would contradict that, and I have not found it. Um, I didn't hear about so, people falling asleep during Operation Ice Castle or whatever you know like like it's a pretty big deal to them i i i don't know that's <laughs> just i find that very difficult to believe but okay so prof taylor uh one of one of the things that um 
Prof Taylor. It sounds so official. Um, I thought you doctor, said Prophet Taylor. Oh. Prof- <laughs> yes, that's even better. Oh Prophet man, Matthew. going forward, we, I should just introduce myself as I'm Zach. I'm uh, an, an apostle, a prophet, uh, a podcaster. Um, yeah. There you go, man. <laughs> That'd be perfect, actually. Just out. Anybody um, can just say they're one. Peter Wagner's not around it, to vet him anymore. It certainly certainly <laughs> seems that way. Um, there's been a lot of usage of the term ecclesia, which is uh, the Greek, the coined Greek word commonly translated as church in the New Testament. Um, and basically, ecclesia, as far as you know, my research, which is a simple Google search essentially, and you know, I've, I've learned about this a little bit in seminary too, but it's it's usually a called out assembly or congregation. But it seems like some elements of the charismatic movement are using this as a more political term. They're they're using this term to say, you know, again, into this supremacy idea that Christians should be um, influential in the government. Like that's what ecclesia means. Can can you clear that up? How they're how they're using that that word? Yeah. So I trace this idea back to another Wagner disciple named Dutch Sheets, who I argue in the series that. Uh, of all the living disciples of Peter Wagner, maybe of all the living Christian leaders today, I don't know that anyone was more responsible for the Christian ethos of January 6th than Dutch Sheets. He's the one who creates this appeal to heaven flag meme. And you see dozens, maybe hundreds of these appeal to heaven flags. It's hard to always track all the footage from January 6th because it's all from people's social media accounts. But there's a legion of these flags in the crowd. And they're all referencing Dutch Sheets. And he is very instrumental in mobilizing Christians for that day. Um, Dutch Sheets, uh, starting around the year 2009-2010, is and there's there's deeper roots to this stuff again, but he's the one who really kind of crystallizes it and starts putting it putting it out there into the charismatic slipstream. Starts talking about this idea of ecclesia, right, which is this Greek term, as you noted, usually means assembly. Usually we just translate it as church, right? The study of the church is ecclesiology, right? Um, but he starts kind of doing this different exegesis of this idea. And where he's getting this exegesis is there was there were other uses of this term in the ancient world. Um, and so sometimes when Rome would um, colonize a new area, the Roman Empire would colonize a new area, they would um, send an assembly of Romans to go and rule over that area. And they would use that term, ecclesia, the assembly of, of the, and so sheets, even though you, you can search far and wide in Christian history, this is not how Christians have interpreted this passage, right? This is a very I mean, generally kind of Roman. Christians don't read the Bible and go, hey, we should do the Roman stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> like they seem like good guys. <laughs> according to Dutch sheets, Jesus, and they're especially fixated on this passage in Matthew chapter 16, right? <laughs> Matthew 16, where Jesus says, um, on my ecclesia, on my church, uh, right? On, on this rock, I'll build my ecclesia. On the rock of the apostles or on the rock of Peter's proclamation, I will build my ecclesia and the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so from Dutch Sheets' interpretation, what Jesus is doing there is he's taking the Roman model of colonization. And right? <laughs> I know this sounds a little absurd, but he's taking the Roman model of colonization and saying, this is what I want my church to be. I want my church to be the ruling body government and go in and colonize new areas and bring the culture of heaven. This is an important phrase for them and rule over it. And so from Dutch's perspective, <laughs> the, the, 
Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, who was executed by the Roman yeah. Empire, is appropriating the model of the Roman Empire. Oh the, my God! The model of the lords of the Gentiles to colonize whole, whole areas. And it's transform even more culture. ridiculous than what I was. So it's it's beyond looking at a verse in the New Testament where where it's used in a Roman context, but literally he's saying that. Jesus is saying, hey, these Romans are really onto something, you guys. <laughs> yep. That is it's... this is the analogy. And so this 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 idea has become very popular. You hear it on the lips of a lot of people. Yeah. Even Sean Foyt uses yep. this terminology of ecclesia as the ruling body government. But from the perspective of Dutch Sheets, the actual government of the United States is the church. Right. And that's what Lauren Boebert is referencing. Yep. She says the church mm -hmm. should tell the government what to do. Back around to that one. Yep. The real spiritual government is the apostles and prophets. And they and so Dutch sheets will often use this this image of marrying spiritual and civil government. And that's what a lot of this mobilization that he's doing around January 6th is about. We need to marry the spiritual government of these charismatic apostles and prophets to the administration of Donald Trump to have an even better in-sync relationship, even better <laughs> guidance for America through kind of blending together spiritual and civil government. That I'm, I'm so glad we asked that question because that explanation is wild um disturbingly ironic <laughs> it just you know they, they twist things to how they want to use them so um so i wanted to ask about post january 6 myth making martyrdom um when 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 brad was in town the other day he he read from a, a section of his of his book that that dealt with Ashley Babbitt and you talk about her on the podcast and I talked about him uh, about this with him afterwards but something kind of kind of clicked with me where I've had done enough interviews about this stuff I've 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 studied January 6th enough where I don't really see it primarily as a as a political event anymore obviously politics is involved but I really do see it as primarily a religious event and and the the martyrdom of Ashley Babbitt, um, which has galvanized and mobilized a, a great many people, thus becomes a religious martyrdom. And when I think of a modern religious martyr, the first person that comes to mind is Cassie Bernal, um, whose story was was it, it, it uh, an untrue version of events of what happened at Columbine took off galvanized people created a cottage industry of of teen martyrdom books and journals and and she said yes paraphernalia and you know when more information came out and they learned what actually went down you, you could read dave cullen's book columbine to hear all about this like even when her pastor was told the real events that happened and yeah it couldn't have been her because of we know what part of the room this event occurred in and somebody else had this interaction okay it wasn't cassie even when confronted with the with the facts his response is essentially well you know the church has our version of the story and that's not really going to be changing anytime and i'm 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 wondering you know we have all of this myth making around ashley babbitt now you know trump's out there saying you know this poor young innocent woman doing nothing but but 
but demonstrating for patriotism gunned down by an, by an evil representative of of the democrats you know um i'm wondering i'm wondering what you think about the the myth making and and how january 6th has grown to be a a unifying thing for the right where you know on the day of in in your in your show you get all these clips of nar leaders you know praying against violence happening and and you know pretending as if that isn't happening right then and there but i think a lot of those same leaders now they've they've gone with the flipped script and been like that was an amazing day that god was working through all these people where what what do you think about the the future of the myth making surrounding january 6th there's a great um, 1998 book by a sociologist named Christian Smith about American evangelicalism. And the, the title is American Evangelicalism. The subtitle is Embattled and Thriving. Mm. And I think that is one of the, the realities of American evangelicalism, right? <laughs> Even as it's, by all measurements, the most influential religious movement in America, even as it has immense cultural power and the a voting block that um, holds sway over one of the two political parties in our country, there's always this narrative of embattlement. And the the NAR just, as with everything else, just ramps that up to 11, right? And yeah. so mm -hmm. it's the the idea that, and, and, and this blends with that victorious eschatology idea, right? That, that as the end of time approaches, the forces of darkness, you hear this in the rhetoric of Sean Foyt, the forces of darkness are going to become more and more, and the light of the church is going to become greater and greater. And mm -hmm. we're going to have this kind of ascending confrontation. And so the narratives of martyrdom and you, of, of Ashley Babbitt, and you hear this from people like Michael Flynn in the Reawaken America tour, um, is very much something a theme that he keeps returning to, that, that Ashley Babbitt is a patriot, that Ashley Babbitt um, is, is the, one of the first martyrs or even one of the first deaths in a, a, an ongoing civil war. So January 5th, when, when in the immediate aftermath, I think a lot of people thought maybe this is a turning point. Maybe this is the, the 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 fever breaking, but it has not broken, right? Nope. And you, if you go, so there there are these Christian um, crowdfunding sources called like Give Send, Give, Send Go. Go, yeah. And if, and if you go on there and type J six, you can find all these people, all these Christians who participated in January sixth, raising money for their legal defenses. And using theological language to justify their presence there, to explain kind of what their righteous and biblical motivations for being there were, right? And so, and, and the narratives of these kind of martyrs, the narrative of embattlement, the narrative of, well, these were good Christian people who somehow just got caught up in this violence. It, it, it feeds this sense of persecution sense of kind of cultural embattlement. Um, just to give another illustration, I was I was reading Dutch Sheets's blog a few months ago. And um and he had this post about 8-8 is the new 9-11. August 8th is the new 9-11. And we we have never seen such an aggressive confrontation 
against our people as on August 8th. I'm sitting there like, what is August 8th? Like, I, I don't even know what that I mean, means. We know 88 is a really bad number for the associated with things on the far right, but... It's the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? So, again, this, this narrative of we and Donald Trump are persecuted and we are unjustly being attacked... Right, that that is is really stoking the fires of this Christian resentment, this Christian nationalism, this Christian supremacy, and the Reawaken America tour is is kind of the the dead center uh, where you see that all those forces kind of congealing and becoming um, uh, hardened into um, a militancy, a radicalism, and like flashpoint. Absolutely, not everybody can go to the Reawaken America <laughs> tour, but I know my mother in law is watching Flashpoint. Before before we let you go, uh, before we start, you know, you know, Dave and I have a background with Mars Hill, and I'm very interested in the chameleonic nature of Mark Driscoll as he moves to new areas and and gets a sense of of where the power and money is and tries to ingratiate himself into that, and and you see what I have thought but don't really have hard evidence of, you 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 see him making inroads and connections in the NAR world. Can you tell us about that? So one of the organizations that Peter Wagner starts is called the International Coalition of Apostles. Um, When Wagner retires, it gets renamed, taken over by one of the Eagles Vision Apostolic team members named John Kelly, and they rename it the International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders. So it goes from ICA to ICAL. And there's a subgroup of that called USCAL, United States Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, and Mark Driscoll has shown up at these some of these US Cal meetings, at least one, I think it was like 2017 or 2018. Um, and then recently, if you this this video surfaced right right before the um, election, where Carrie Lake, who's a very right wing figure running for um, governor of Arizona, who the independent charismatics and the NAR really mobilized hard around Carrie Lake, she even showed up on that flashpoint show at one point with a whole group of flashpoint people kind of endorsing wow. her but this video emerged. To accept the election <laughs> she does um and this video emerged of charismatic pastors praying over her and anointing her with oil this was a few days before the election in november mark driscoll was in that video but there were also some nar leaders that were in that video and so he's at least swimming in the same waters as the nar these days and it would not shock me at all to see Mark Driscoll at some point calling himself an apostle um, and starting to set up an apostolic network. This this stuff is, if you're traveling in certain circles, this stuff is is is, is just catnip for people of a certain personality type. <laughs> that makes sense. I think I, I know what certain personality type you mean. Yeah. Um, well, well, thank you. We'll we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, if 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 we see any more movements of that, if he if he starts his apostolic ministry, I know he's got a. He's di- he's dipping back into the the sexy waters with his new book uh, coming out on on uh, uh, Song of Solomon, um, but maybe after that he'll he'll do one about uh, apostolic ministry and prophetic words and all that, and and if that's the case, we'll have to we'll have to have you back uh, <laughs> if you read it because I really won't want to read it. <laughs> no, thank you. Pass. <laughs> Probably only for researchers only. Uh, there's um, so much that you have had to ingest in making this podcast uh, and, and in just doing your research that I, I do not envy it. Um, but uh, yeah, thank, thank you for doing it so we don't have to. 
Oh, wow. Well, um, just to maybe briefly shift gears from the topic that we've just been discussing, uh, Matthew, I know you mentioned you uh, studied uh, Islam for a while and, and you work at now at a, a center, Islamic studies and uh, peaceful dialogue and stuff like that. I was wondering if you wanted to share what interested you to, um, you know, uh, officially study Islam in an academic setting and what is your work like now with these dialogues and discussions uh, across faiths? Yeah, so coming from an evangelical background, um, I, I, for a very long part of my life, saw Muslims as objects of conversion, right? The, 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 I should get to know Islam in order to convert Muslims. And then the more that I studied Islam, and this was part of that transition out of evangelicalism, I realized I, I'm not interested in converting Muslims, but I really like conversing with them. I found a lot of things in contemporary Islam that resonated deeply with some of my own questions, my own theological struggles, the things that I was asking. And over time, I became very interested, especially in a particular movement within Islam called Salafism. And Salafis span everything from kind of quietist communities in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and throughout the Muslim world to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, our kind of jihadi Salafi movements. And so, but the thing about Salafism is they're very interested in scripture. They're very interested in popularizing scripture. And they especially focus on the Hadith, which are the um, sayings and actions of the Prophet Muhammad. It's kind of a secondary scripture in Islam that has usually been the realm of scholars, but they want everyone to study the Hadith and everyone to learn. Um, and so um, I saw, I felt a lot of resonances between Salafism and my own evangelical background. And so I wound up writing my dissertation and my first book that's coming out in a few months on American Salafism um, and the, the shifts that has undergone since 9-11. Uh, after 9-11, the U.S. security state comes crashing down on the Salafi community because they associate them with ISIS, even though most of them had no idea, or with Al-Qaeda, even though most of them had no idea what Al-Qaeda was even about. Um, and so they, they go through a process of trying to, to survive. In American culture and wind up adopting a lot of the styles of American evangelicalism, a lot of the rhetoric of American evangelicalism, and kind of work their way into the fabric of American culture. Um, and so it's really a, a story of pluralism, story of how this movement that everyone calls radical Islam or Islamic fundamentalism is actually a very well integrated part of the American Islamic community. Um, and then I, I work in a, 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 the field of interreligious and interfaith dialogue. Um, our center, we do all kinds of programs, educating the, the, the public. The, our programs are free. Almost all of them are online. If people are interested in joining them, it's just go to icjs.org. Um, and we are based in Baltimore. We especially focus on the Jewish, Muslim, and Christian communities in Baltimore. But we're also working in the academic field, trying to help people think about interreligious and pluralistic paradigms for the U.S. What does it mean for us to be in a diverse society that has a lot of different religious viewpoints? And how do we not push all those religious viewpoints to the margins, but allow all of them to be at the heart of, uh, of American culture? Very much the antidote, I think, to this Christian nationalism narrative that wants to say only one faith defines America well, actually, we are a, an interreligious society. We're a pluralistic society, and how do we how do we live into that? That's really what our center is about. What is the name of your book coming out in a few months, and where can people find you on social media if they they want to connect with you? So the book is called Scripture People. 
Salafi Muslims and Evangelical Christians America. It's coming out with Cambridge University Press. It should be in August of 2023. If you want to find me, you can look at our um, ICJS website again, www.icjs.org. That's the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies. I'm also on Twitter at Taylor Matthew D. And um, I, I'm happy to, to field emails and Twitter calls. I, I, I'm, I like kind of engaging with <laughs> folks around religion. Fantastic. Well, great. Well, thank, thank you th so much. Yeah, th thank you so much for being on here. Like, like I said at the beginning, I just, I just think the charismatic revival fury was exemplary, and uh, it, you know, it's, I, I feel, I feel really, really. Um, boy, I almost said blessed. <laughs> <laughs> Say it, Zach. Say it. <laughs> I feel really lucky that uh, I that I can call Brad a friend as well as Scott Okamoto, who did all the music for that. Scott was uh, incredible in helping us with the music. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be my my family's going to be going over and spending some time with him in a in a few months, uh, as we have a Disneyland trip planned, and we can't do the park every day. Um, so uh, <laughs> looking forward to, to to seeing seeing him in person again. Um, but yeah, it it was it was an incredible sh series, and if, if anybody is listening to this that hasn't for some reason listened to that um do it immediately <laughs> like like it it really really is excellent at at making complex things understandable um i know some of this stuff um i think brad said it's like like diving into alphabet soup is how it can feel all the acronyms all of the interrelated organizations and things can just make makes you feel like 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 you're putting the red string and thumbtacks on, on the wall, like all day, but, but this podcast doesn't make you feel insane. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's a big accomplishment in and of itself. Um, and we'll link to it in show notes as well. If our listeners want to, you know, easy way to check that out, uh, to click on it and listen. Absolutely. Well, Dave, that was, here we are. That was fascinating. Um, really interesting what a what a so great guy like i want to go climb mount everest and do battle <laughs> with a with a demon with christian Ter nationalism you, you want spirit. to fight the the queen of christian nationalism yeah yeah i i hear you man oh it, it's just um it's really fascinating and intriguing and matthew taylor is just a was such an interesting guy was with so much knowledge about that topic but it is just kind of scary for our society whether what is going to happen with our government we we this this podcast is doing what we can to fight christian nationalism but we can't do it alone we need all of our listeners interceding on our behalf to take down the spirit of christian nationalism that, oh sorry Sorry. <laughs> I thought you were going to make an appeal to uh, to give to our Patreon or something. Oh, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do have a Patreon. Uh, Which we actually do have one. Yep. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not like we're, we, we both have day jobs, so we're not doing this podcast to make money. But if someone out there likes the show, you want to support us, as little as $1 a month, we're, you know, again, we're not we're not doing this to make a bunch of cash uh, that is one way you can support the show another yeah. way is we have the 
VCW, the Etsy.com, VCW Holler Pod. VCW Hall. VCW Hall. I will say, I do not know how long that that merch is going to be available for because I didn't realize that listing it once only lasts for a certain amount of time. So everything was gone and and uh, I, I had it relist them all, but you only get so many free listings. So if people aren't buying stuff, then it's not worth it to post all these things. Okay. So maybe eventually. for a very limited time. Yeah, limited edition wares. merch is available <laughs> on there. Um, so yeah, go, go get it while you can. Etsy.com vcw hall um yeah thank, thanks so much everybody uh, thank really you good. thank you good to be back and, and yeah it is great to be back and um as long as elon musk has not detonated twitter and fired every single employee we are at vcw pod on twitter i'm at dave j lester zach is at muzak m-u-z-a-c-h and you can see some of his art music good stuff on muzak.bandcamp.com Thanks again for coming on down to VCW Hall. And remember, as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tie 10%.